I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATOS, your genetically engineered poison speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about Zodiac by Neil Stevenson, which was originally published in 1988. Neil Stevenson is another of these writers who I discovered when I was in the army. His book, Cryptonopagon, was brand new in trade paperback. One random Saturday, I was browsing the tattered cover in Denver, and I was in the market for a thousand-page adventure. So I grabbed it, and I fell in love. And after that, I went back and read his entire back catalog, including Zodiac, and I've kept up with him ever since. Zodiac is one of Stevenson's thrillers. It's of a piece with Reemdy, for example, and I have tended to like the thrillers less than his other stories— and Zodiac has some flaws, but I did enjoy it, and I'm really excited to talk about it. So, on that note, let's jump into Zodiac. The first thing to know about Zodiac is that it is a self-proclaimed eco-thriller, and right? it's going to be about some kind of powerful force wreaking ecological damage and the plucky band of heroes who stop it. But because it's Stevenson, even very early Stevenson, we know that however much thriller we get, this book is going to be heavy on the eco, heavy on the, the science. Being a thriller, of course, means loads of plot. But even still, I think this will be a pretty short recap because in the end, a lot of the plot details just don't matter that much. The second thing to know about Zodiac is that it is a first-person narrative, a really hard-boiled narrative. So let's meet our narrator and protagonist, Sangamon Taylor. ST, as he goes by, is a chemist who works for GEE, an environmental group that is essentially Greenpeace, except that Stevenson didn't want to get sued, so he called them something else. ST lives in Boston, and, and this is the real world circa 1988, by the way, and he investigates industrial pollution, especially dumping into Boston Harbor. And the title of the book derives from the type of inflatable boat that ST uses to explore the harbor and its tributary rivers and to just get around Boston without getting stuck in its horrific traffic. Most of the first act just introduces us to ST's daily life and his romantic problems, of which there are many. We learn that, much like the actual Greenpeace, GEE takes direct action against polluters. There's a whole side adventure down to New Jersey where ST plugs up a drain pipe from a chemical factory in which much of the action takes place in a hardware store as ST uses toilet rings to solve an engineering problem. So we know that he is a man of action. He's clever and resourceful. Okay, let's get to the actual story that we're here for. Let's talk about the premise. Back in Boston, ST discovers the presence of PCBs in the harbor. As I said, Stevenson is always heavy on the science, and we get a lot about what PCBs are and the chemistry behind pollution, and especially pollution that causes cancer. A PCB stands for polychlorinated biphenyl, and it's an organic chlorine compound that is super toxic to us and to our environment, and they were banned in 1978. And this pollution is bad. ST's investigation shows that the PCBs have gotten into the lobsters and the fish, and therefore have gotten into the local food supply. And he even sees people who show signs of PCB toxicity, signs of, of PCB poisoning. But where did it come from? And that's going to be part one of the mystery. The villain of this story is a chemical company named Basco, though really we might say that the villain of the story is the whole system of industrial capitalism and the military-industrial congressional complex. ST has wrestled with this company before. He's plugged up their toxic drains and so on, but he has never been able to get any criminal charges to stick. 
What's more, the family that controls Basco, that founded the company and still owns most of the stock, is active in politics, and one of them is even running for the Democratic presidential nomination. So they're powerful people with a lot to lose. The plot of the story is that decades ago, Basco buried something on an artificial trash island out in Boston Harbor, something that is full of PCBs. And a recent hurricane damaged this equipment, and it's begun leaking these PCBs into the harbor. Some of the story is given over to ST figuring this out, but mostly it just falls in his lap because he has people helping with researching publicly available information from old newspapers and, and that sort of thing. And the craft reason this mystery isn't that difficult to solve is that it isn't the real mystery. The real mystery is that just as ST is gathering his evidence to prove that Basco is responsible for the PCBs in the harbor, the PCBs in the harbor disappear. Suddenly, there's just no more problem. But of course, there is. What's happened is that Basco has always known these PCBs might someday leak into the harbor and has been keeping an eye on it, at least since 1978, when that became something that they could get in trouble for. Years ago, Basco bought a biotechnology company and has had them engineer a new organism that will actually consume the PCBs. And this should be great. It, it certainly works. It has gotten rid of this pressing environmental disaster. But, of course, this organism itself is now a potential new disaster because it threatens to turn all the salt in the oceans into chlorine, which will destroy the entire planet. And stopping this potential disaster then becomes the plot of the final act, and this is really where Stevenson turns on the full thriller. Basco is well aware that ST knows precisely what's going on, and, and they even try to buy him off. But when he refuses, they frame him for an assassination attempt on their guy who is running for president. As a result, ST has to go on the run and into hiding and fake his own death. And the only way back, the only way to get back to his real life is to prove his case against Basco. Along the way, he gets some help from some Native Americans and another environmentalist who also has been mistakenly labeled a terrorist for things he didn't actually do. In the end, of course, ST wins. There's some daring business about stealing a boat from Basco, stopping a disgruntled Basco employee from trying to kill the guy running for president. And there's a whole bit about paintball there. And a number of subplots about metal music and ST's love life. It's a satisfying ending, even if the amount of action is extremely dizzying. So that's the plot, summed up much more quickly than I'm usually able to do. So we can move into our, our themes and motifs segment, where there are, there are two topics I want to discuss. The second will be the world as a built environment, or maybe we might really call it the secret foundations of modernity. But first, I want to look at ST as a chivalric hero, uh, as an environmentalist who is a chivalric hero. It was only two episodes ago, I guess, that we, we talked about detective fiction as a descendant of the medieval chivalric romance, and that is on full display here in Zodiac. Sangamon Taylor is a kind of knight errant in this story, wandering the Northeast, defending communities from the forces of darkness. Now, in this case, those forces of darkness are corporations who manufacture chemicals, but they may as well really be evil sorcerers as far as the local populace is concerned. There's a big fortress nearby, and ever since it went up, the local people have been getting sick. And then comes the hero ST to duel with the sorcerer and put a stop to his harmful magic. This isn't news, right? This has been at the heart of the detective story from its inception. But what is novel here is that the detective is an environmentalist. 
And so the thriller aspect of these stories has moved from investigating the ways that the wealthy exploit our democratic institutions for their own enrichment to investigating the ways that the wealthy poison the earth for their own enrichment. And Stevenson is definitely making a point here, and it's one that would have been a hot topic in the 1970s and 1980s. The question of whether environmentalists taking direct action against polluters was morally good, even if their actions clearly violated property laws and could even endanger the lives of workers, was a big issue in the public discourse. And for many people, these environmentalists were terrorists who must be stopped. And that's certainly a play here in Zodiac, where ST teams up with a character who is essentially a stand-in for Paul Watson, one of the founders of Greenpeace, who was kicked out of the organization in the late 70s for promoting direct action rather than nonviolent protests. In particular, Watson was a prominent figure in the anti-whaling movement and is regarded as a terrorist by the government of Japan. Stevenson's version, though, is sympathetic, and we're told that most of the charges against him are false just as the charges against ST are demonstrably false. And it's pretty clear that ST is awesome, and that Stevenson wants us to regard him as a hero, a hero who works tirelessly to protect us from bad guys. We, as readers, are certainly going to see the polluters as bad guys in this book, because they are. I think we'd have a difficult time finding someone who really believes that it's morally acceptable to poison the food supply or give people cancer in order to make a profit— But it is a real question whether violence or eco-terrorism or direct action, whatever we might want to call it, are the, the right way to protect ourselves from those who would poison the well for their own enrichment. And some of this seems a little quaint to me because this isn't really a hot topic ever since Star Trek IV convinced everyone that we really should save the whales. But I wonder how we would react to this book today if the offenders were an oil company and the crime was climate change rather than poisoning the local food supply. And I'd be really interested in having that conversation on the forum. All right, let's talk about the world as a built environment. This is something that runs through almost all of Stevenson's books, and it's something that I really appreciate about them. Most of us live our lives having no idea how any of our stuff works, yet being totally dependent on that stuff. I think we're all well aware that we have no idea how cell phones work. They, They may as well be magic to most of us. But this is true of just about every aspect of the world we live in. Do you really understand everything that goes into illuminating your home at night? Probably not, right? That might as well be magic, too. And to get gross about it, toilets are basically just magic to most of us. They take an undesired element and whisk it away, and we can just wash our hands and go about our days without thinking about it. But Stevenson does think about it. A lot. And his books always contain a highly detailed treatment of at least one part of our constructed environment, how it works, and when it was all put together— In Zodiac, it is the waste disposal system that we all depend on. Toilets and sewers and drains, but also garbage collection. Stevenson shows us how this system works in Boston. We see its flaws, we see its shortcomings, but we also see the circumstances that led to those flaws and shortcomings when people were making choices about this generations ago. Choices that are still affecting us, even if we don't pay much attention to it. The plot of Zodiac depends on the fact that the Boston sewage system just pours into the ocean and forgets about the gross stuff it's just dumped there, where fish live, fish we eat. This makes for a highly polluted Boston Harbor, or or did at least until about 30 years ago, and this is how cities are built. In my own native Chicago, it was the river that was used like this, and it was so polluted that it caught on fire during the Great Chicago Fire in the 1860s. 
And Boston's solution to trash was also to make use of the harbor, towing trash out into the harbor on barges and just dumping it on Spectacle Island until the small amount of land that made up the island itself was just buried under garbage that like quadrupled the size of the island. And this is a huge feature of Zodiac. Much of the action takes place on or around Spectacle Island, which is also the source of the PCB spill. And there's a great scene near the end of the book when ST and his band of heroes create and ignite methane events by by drilling into the island. And for most of the 20th century, you could actually see methane ignition, spontaneous methane ignitions from the, the decomposing trash on Spectacle Island. This was something you could just watch from the city itself. It was, it was kind of like a fireworks display. Spectacle Island, and, and really most of the harbor, was cleaned up in the 1990s, and, and this is true for most of our cities. And this is largely the result of the environmentalist movement of the 1960s and 1970s. I'm glad that Zodiac has reminded me of this, and, and also that it is pointed out that I have no idea what the city of Philadelphia does with my household waste, even though as a citizen, it's really my job to know exactly that, to know if the system that we are using is morally good or good in the long term. And I'm going to have to find out. This is a really a part of my civic duty, and I'm glad that Stevenson has reminded me of this. And this is something that I go to Stevenson for. I didn't know I was interested in sewer systems, but it turned out I was. And this is true for all sorts of mechanical, engineering, and infrastructural topics that Stevenson has written about over the last 40 years. I think the way that he explores the hidden infrastructure of modern civilization is a, a genuine strength of all his books, and the focus on urban infrastructure is a, a real strength of Zodiac. And there's a particular line that I want to read here in which Stevenson shows us that our idea of what a city is just kind of confuses and, and maybe even obfuscates reality for us. Contrary to what every bonehead believes, the land surface has been stretched out and expanded by civilization. Look at any downtown city. What would be a tiny distance on a backpacking trip becomes a transcontinental journey. You spend hours traveling just a few miles. Your mental map of the city grows and stretches until things seem far away. And this is certainly true to my experience as a backpacker who happens to live in a dirty and congested city in the American Northeast. And I love how Stevenson expresses this, how he shows us what a city is as an environment. On that same note, there is a lot of chemistry here, or at least a lot of chemistry for a guy who's only ever had one chemistry class all the way back in high school. Again, I love Stevenson for his technical writing, and I certainly learned precisely why I should be afraid to go swimming in the Delaware River, and why it's such a problem that my street in Philadelphia floods every time it rains. But far and away, the best part of Zodiac is the voice of Sangamon Taylor. Stevenson nails the form and the voice of the first-person hard-boiled detective story, and Zodiac reads like a Raymond Chandler novel for the 1980s. And I'll, I'll give two examples of this. The, the first is early in the book, when S.T. is telling us who he is and what he does for G.E.E. There is some profanity here, by the way, which I'm, I'm going to amend. I won't actually say it, but it does mean I'm modifying something that I, I say that I'm quoting. G.E.E. employs me as a professional jerk. An innate talent I've enjoyed ever since second grade when I learned how to give my teacher migraine headaches with a pen light. I could cite other examples, give you a tour down the gallery of the broken and infuriated authority figures who have tried to teach, steer, counsel, reform, or suppress me over the years. But that would sound like boasting. I'm not that proud of being a congenital pain in the butt, but I will take money for it. The second line I'll read here is one of Stevenson's attempts at a Chandlerian simile. Now, it is not perfect, but I love it nonetheless. Rebecca had picked the sunniest corner of the room, 
and the light was making her green eyes glow like traffic lights, and her perfume volatize off her skin. What I love about this simile is that Stevenson employs one of the techniques of the genre, as Raymond Chandler pioneered it back in the the 30s, but uses it to emphasize the two things this book is about, urban infrastructure and chemistry. It's really well done when even your similes are on message. It's just fantastic. Now, as much as I liked Zodiac, there are some weaknesses. In the end, I enjoyed the writing far more than the story itself. In general, thrillers aren't really my thing. There's often way too much action, and that is certainly true here. In fact, I think there might be more action in the final act of Zodiac than in all the books we've read so far combined. And it was both dizzying and exhausting. This can be coupled as well with a lot of action in the first act when ST goes on a a lengthy side quest in New Jersey. As I was reading that side quest, I didn't dislike it. In, In fact, I thought it was quite good. But it meant that my quota for action was getting filled up by something that wasn't actually the story. And so I think Stevenson should have caught all of that. In fact, this copy that I've got comes out to 320 pages, while my copy of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep is only 230. And Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon, which we gave out as wedding favors, is only 215 pages. So the lesson here, I think, is that a great hard-boiled detective story needs to be a lot leaner than Zodiac is. But I should also say that I'm recording this only a few days after his new novel, The Fall, or Dodge in Hell, has just come out, and that's 880 pages. So... Maybe 330 is as lean as Stevenson can get. All right, that's going to bring my review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about Zodiac. There are two aspects of the book that I didn't focus on much in my review, and and those are the business about American electoral politics, and also, and, and maybe really especially, Stevenson's insistence that genetically modified organisms are innately bad and should be banned. But I would love to talk about these topics with you on the forum. Okay, so that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next time, we'll be reading Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. This is going to be our first horror or weird fiction book in, in quite a while. Too long, perhaps. So I'm really looking forward to it. But until then, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.